electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. Today on Squawk Pod, Wall Street bracing for Fed expectations. If things are bad, then go to a place that shows that things are bad. And the data that might lead to big rate hikes. The markets are teasing us. No, it's the economy that's teasing us. AI is coming for your office. Salesforce taking a step into the ring with their new service, Einstein GPT. Salesforce's Clara Shee. AI is only as valuable as the quality and the trustworthiness of the data. New data showing consumers are feeling flush. Bank of America's Liz Everett Crisper. Consumers across all income levels have money. They have got 50% more than they did pre-pandemic. Plus, the rest of today's stories that got us squawking. From the wrestling ring to a Wall Street scandal. Should a bank be aware of where every employee, wherever senior executive is spending his weekends? It's Thursday, March 9th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you. It's nice to see you all. It's nice to be around the table. You're in the chair. We've had some other people in your chair. I heard about that. Oh. That there were some other people sitting Just in this chair. Yes. Yes. Mike Nance was in my chair when I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, true. Yeah, people sit That's here. True. There's people that sit here on that show late in the afternoon that I'm not so happy about. Oh, but, really? Oh, yeah. Why? Cooties? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Suddenly yeah. you're worried about germs. Another day, another headline about Fed expectations. Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell told lawmakers this week that interest rates are likely to increase more than previously expected as part of the Fed's long push against inflation. No matter the encouraging data we may get before the rate setting committee meets later this month, key numbers to watch are this Friday's job report or even next week's inflation figures. The data we've seen so far uh, this year suggests that the ultimate level of rates will need to be higher. But we, we still have some more data to come in between now and the meeting. Markets responded not so positively. The yield for two-year Treasury bonds exceeded the yield for 10-year T-bills. That's called an inversion when the short-term bond yield rises above the long-term at its deepest point since 1981. A yield curve inversion is typically a recession signal which weighs on already nervous investors, tracking the Fed's moves in percents of percents. Can't wait to get to, to this wrestling story, but to, to, when I read this, uh, the, the Powell testimony from yesterday, if you just read this headline, at least in the 10 point, said that the Fed was keeping its options open after people assumed 50 was gonna happen again. And he was saying that, uh, I, I assumed it, that he's, you're saying, look, we may have to go faster, right. higher, but we're still data dependent. And, and, and Leesman yesterday kept emphasizing he may know high frequency type stuff, but he does not know the number tomorrow. He doesn't know specifically what, what the inflation numbers are next week. So, so what I take from that is that for the last month, things have been hotter and he sees that and thinks we may need 50, but still open to 
Well, I, I would agree with that. I maybe agree that's, with that assessment. But but yesterday we didn't see some big bounce back in a big no, way. No, but the, I, I look. You know, where's the S and P? Guess where the S and P is? Four thousand probably. Not, still. not just below. Just below yeah. again. It just right. it's weird. It just seems to be holding. And where's the ten year? Just, just below four percent, and the so, two years just above five percent. Which I find it all very frustrating because if things are bad and 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 they deserve to be bad, then go to a place that shows that things are bad. That, that's stop the teasing we're, us no, that things might the, be okay. He's not teasing us. It's the data. No, that's I mean no. The markets are teasing where, us. No, it's the economy is teasing right. us. We don't know where things are, and everybody's just kind of waiting to see what happens next, and it, that's why it's a weird inflection point. That's why. Today, everything can look great. Tomorrow, it can look terrible, right. and vice versa. Barry Knapp, we got to have him on again. He sent me something yesterday. I don't know if you sent we it to everyone. No, no but, you, but, you read it to me. Yeah, and, and it made, it, he's like, Volcker's situation took 10 years to, to brew the, the, the horrible wage price pressures. The place. And this happened quickly, and it was pandemic-related, and yeah, there, was some, there was some spending and, and some fiscal uh, largesse, probably, but I, I just, I don't know, I'm still hopeful. We've got a developing story this morning. J.P. Morgan now suing former executive Jess Staley. This over his ties to Jeffrey Epstein, revealing that Staley has been accused of sexual assault. Eamon Javers joins us now with more. Eamon. Yeah, good morning, Andrew. J.P. Morgan is facing multiple lawsuits alleging that the bank aided Jeffrey Epstein in sex trafficking by keeping him on as a client and helping him send money to victims over the years. Yesterday's action from the bank, which was filed in a Manhattan federal court, argues that Staley, who documents show had a close personal relationship with Epstein, should be held liable for any damages if the bank loses either of the cases that are pending against it. Now, J.P. Morgan not admitting wrongdoing here, but suggesting that if it's found liable, that Staley should be the one to pay the bill. Now, as part of Wednesday's filing, J.P. Morgan is also seeking to claw back all of Staley's compensation from 2006 to 2013. Staley, who left J.P. Morgan back in 2013, has said that while he was friendly with Epstein, he never knew about Epstein's crimes. One of the questions in this high-profile legal battle is what knowledge, if any, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of the firm, had of the Epstein situation. Now, just two weeks ago, J.P. Morgan told us it couldn't find any indication that Diamond personally reviewed Epstein's accounts back in 2008. That despite one of the emails being released in this case suggesting that maybe there was a Diamond uh, review of those accounts that was pending. So we've not been able to reach out to lawyers representing Staley so far, but J.P. Morgan told CNBC last night in part, we expect all of our employees at every level of the firm act with honesty and integrity. If these allegations against Staley are true, he violated this duty by putting his own personal interests ahead of the company's. Andrew, back over to you. Eamon, um, so many questions uh, about this this morning, one of which is this accusation, of course, um, has not been uh, verified, uh, at least just yet. I mean, um, we haven't seen this play out in court. Does it have to play out in court? for J.P. Morgan to collect, if it's going to collect on this clawback of what sounds like all of his income for a meaningful period of time. And what kind of dollar number are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, clearly a top executive at J.P. Morgan over multiple years, you're talking multiple millions of dollars here. So the question is, uh, you know, can J.P. Morgan get that money? That's going to have to be 
up to the courts, and we'll see where that claim goes. Strikes me, though, Andrew, that this is a high-risk maneuver by J.P. Morgan here in alleging that it was just Staley who was to blame. They're saying, you know, we're not sure anybody's to blame, but if anybody's to blame, it was him, not us. If that's the case, it would seem that Jess Staley has the opportunity to get into discovery with J.P. Morgan uh, and develop any emails or, or information inside J.P. Morgan that might suggest otherwise, right? So if J.P. Morgan is making this case in public, they, they're going to have to be very confident that Jess Staley is not going to be able to find evidence that spreads the blame around inside J.P. Morgan. Because the key here is that Staley was the private wealth manager here who was overseeing Epstein's accounts at a time that he was spending time at Epstein's private island. He was emailing him, apparently, from inside uh, Epstein's hot tub on the island. They were exchanging sexually suggestive pictures of young women uh, back and forth. There was a long uh, relationship and email trail between the two. The question is, what other emails are there inside J.P. Morgan, and could J.P. Morgan be risking those coming out in discovery as a result of filing this lawsuit? Seems to me they must feel that they're in, in good position here. They must feel confident about their position here if they're going to pursue this litigation. Amen. is the expectation then that all of the bad emails concerning Jess Staley are already out there? Like he would have nothing to lose because we already know everything? Or would you think that maybe there's more emails that would look terrible for Jess Staley, anything worse than we've already seen? Well, the question is if there's more emails that would look terrible for J.P. Morgan, right? Uh, other people inside. I mean, Jess Staley's uh, you know, reputation has been severely, severely damaged by this. I mean, these emails, you know, outside observers look at these emails and, and they just seem gross, right, between yeah. Epstein and Staley, knowing what we know now. Uh, his, his image pretty tarnished, right? The question is whether there are other emails inside the firm that uh, indicate that other people might have been aware of this or helping Jess Staley uh, in making sure that Epstein stayed inside the bank. Uh, you know, if you're going to pursue litigation like this, you, you'd better be sure that there aren't any emails like that. And that's why it feels to but, me like J.P. Morgan is confident here. Uh, but but who knows, right? I, it, look, it, it raises all kinds of questions. If J.P. Morgan were to lose on this count, it would raise questions about whether other companies should be watching corporate email much more closely. If you're going to be liable for anything right. anybody's saying and them saying you should have known about this, my guess would be all of a sudden every big corporation is going to start making sure that they are tracking every employee's email. If, if, if J.P. Morgan is liable because sure. they should have known because it was in the emails, that sends a signal to every corporation that you better be monitoring every every employee's email because you're responsible. Sure. And corporations do. I mean, I did a story years ago about Goldman Sachs's email system in which they have a keyword monitoring, right? And they're actually l looking for red flag terms in people's email. If you send one of those inside Goldman, it, it pops up for the monitoring team to look at. So uh, that might is not something, something the companies that do a, already. A flagged alert. Right. But and and there's so there's two ways to look at this, Becky. Right? I mean, on the one hand, you know, Jess Daly was hanging out in the hot tub at Jeffrey Epstein's private island. Um, you know, that seems like it looks pretty suspicious in retrospect, knowing what we know now. But should a bank be aware of where every employee, wherever senior executive is spending his weekends, uh, is is one way to look at it and, and say, well, you know, this guy was doing this on his private time. Yeah, he was sending personal emails, but how are we supposed to know who all his his friends are and what he does on the weekends? 
The other question is, this guy was monitoring Jeffrey Epstein's accounts. He was a huge account for the bank, uh, and he had a deeply personal relationship with him. Isn't that a conflict of interest, uh, at least on some level, that the bank should have been aware of, uh, regardless of, you know, sort of what his weekend activities are, that he was deeply personally connected to this person who he was overseeing as whether he was uh, appropriate to be a client for the bank or not. We got to jump just real quick. How, how long do you think this takes to play out? I think it's months at least, Andrew. We'll, you know, we'll see whether there are, there are other shoes to drop here. But clearly, you know, we haven't heard the right. last of this story. Eamon Javers this morning with the story that everybody's talking about. World Wrestling uh, Entertainment has been in talks with state gambling. It's funny, though, with state gambling regulators in Colorado and Michigan to legalize betting on high-profile scripted matches. We know, they know who's winning, but only a couple people know. No, right. Well, I hope they don't tell anyone, but it was analogized to the Oscars. There's only two people which are coming right. up on Sunday. There's only can a couple people. Can you bet on the Oscars? I think you can bet on the Oscars. Only er, some guy named, only, er, only the guy named Ernst and a guy named Young. No, those, they, they actually don't do it, but there's only a couple people that know, and you can bet on the Oscars, and it, it's a pre... Unless they it, get it wrong, if you remember that famous... Yeah, it, it was I do. PWC who used Probably to the PWC. Oscar. Right. That would be three people. But, uh, w, yeah, <laughs> right. WWE uh, is working with accounting... For, oh, it is EY. With the Oscars. Yeah, with EY to secure those match scripts. Yeah, in hopes it will convince regulators there's no chance of results leaking to the public. It's just the, the idea, though, of someone having that information. Accounting firms have historically worked with award shows. There we go, to keep the results uh, a secret. And wrestling executives cited uh, the Oscar betting as a template, just said. Yeah, but nobody, uh, the, the actors would have to know. Right. The, the, wrestlers the, actor, the wrestlers to know need to know. Case. The, wrestlers the wrestlers need to know. The, people, <laughs> sorry, the wrestlers. wrestlers have a team. Why do the wrestlers need to know? The guy just beats him fair and square. But if it's scripted and you're telling him it's scripted. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. The, so they're taking here's it. The, here's right? the other thing. And the wrestler thing, has so. a, like, a coach or something? Do they have? Do they, I guess they don't have coaches. Or they, do they have people on their team? They have t t people in their in their world. In their world, and they can't just be told who's going to win two minutes before the thing because they have to sort of plan it out a little well, bit. Well, they get really mad at each other before the matches, right? And you know, usually someone ha ha. No, someone that's not even part of the match might get involved with throwing a chair. I mean, there's a lot that goes on that's scripted. And that's you know scripted. That, that's and a that point. Could right. the, that could be if you're if you're that's a lot of people on it and betting who wins. The house, you know, the house. There's always the vigorous, and that's if zero or double zero comes Look, this, up. The double zero, double zero would be a third actor coming in or a third wrestler coming in. Right. And suddenly, them being the ones. Who I win. promise you, if they do this, over the next ten years, there will be at least one instance, at minimum, of some story that you will read immediately about how one of the wrestlers on the team told their family the, friend or no their this or their that, gave the and, high sign and they got a million dollars, you know, whatever it is, and that everyone's then going to jail. I'm but, just telling you that's what's happening. I mean, the more we explain it, the less I think it makes any sense okay, at all except, to try let, to do Let me it. just throw this into it. I read this on Uberfax on Twitter, so I can't verify that this is absolutely oh right, but there was an Uberfax on Twitter recently that said, it's a little known fact that the NFL is considered entertainment so that they could decide whatever the outcome of a game is going to be, which you've complained about the refereeing calls on. Some I'm just complaining. I don't really believe it. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. But it's it, it gives them cover so that if the referees make a bad call, well, it gives them cover for all of that. And it's under the same sort of framing of entertainment. So my guess is WWE has figured that out and is going to say we're entertainment, too. So why can't we do this? The Chiefs were scripted. No, I'm not saying it's scripted. I'm not 
saying it's scripted. I'm it looked like it's it. It's considered entertainment, which probably is just a legal As a Bengals fan and, and an Eagles fan. And again, fan. I'm citing Uber facts on Twitter, so take it with a grain of salt. No, I know. I, 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 but that I was going My point was going to be, no matter how pristine and, and, and above board sports are, there, there could be a bad apple, like an official, remember, in the, in, in the basketball game? Well, but there were those guys, you know, that was making some, I mean, they're so uh, subjective. Well, just like in football, some of those holding calls, but foul calls, and you, you can... And, and you know that the, apparently, Geo Baker just broke this news yesterday or the day before. The Rutgers-Ohio State game, which Rutgers lost on a bad call from the ref at the last second, they have now decided the NCAA is going to consider that a win for whether or not they put Rutgers into the tournament. The, no to kidding. The big, to, the big, to the big dance tournament, because they said it was bad call from the ref. It was clearly shown afterwards. So that changes the records. Not, not that it will change the records officially, but for whether or not they determine. Because there's so many teams that are on the bubble this year to try and get into the NCAA. Did you look at the lineup today? Uh, for your tournament? Just for, for all the, the No, for no, no, no. For all, there are tournaments. Galore. Oh my God! The the, the, the games today. The, the, the people. You know who Rutgers is playing? Yes, noon. We're playing Michigan. Michigan in Chicago. Right. I mean, but there are. There's 20 games that I thought, wow, I'd like to bet on that, bet on that. I'd like to lose on that, lose on There's that. There's games I thought I'd like to watch. You'd like to bet on them. No, I like, <laughs> well, I like to bet on them and watch them. That's why. Yeah. I mean, I, when, the first thing I see is which network is carrying them before I bet on a game so I can watch it. Yeah. 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 And turn it off when I get too nervous. It's always happened. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, big tech continues to invest in artificial intelligence. Now it's coming for your Slack. Salesforce launches their new product, Einstein GPT, an AI chatbot that they expect to roll out in workplace products. Clara Shee of Salesforce. We're not talking about writing funny poems. We're talking about writing sales emails and customer service responses that agents can send to get back to customers faster. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand under by in three, two, one, cue Andrew. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market set in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Salesforce, the latest tech giant to showcase its AI investments, the company partnering with the organization behind ChatGPT to launch Einstein GPT. It's a suite of generative AI products that will be incorporated into the Salesforce data cloud and systems like Tableau and MuleSoft and Slack as well. Joining us right now to talk about what clients want from the generative AI is Clara She is CEO of Salesforce's service cloud, I should say. She's also, of course, a Starbucks board member. It's nice to see you. It's been a long time. 
Uh, Great Clara, to see you too. What do you think this is? What do you think the future of this really is in terms of what the actual products will look like? Well, you know, ChatGPT has become the talk of the town, and our clients are seeing the value of using generative AI from sales to marketing to service to IT. And so I think that's why the, the, we've seen a tremendous response to our announcement of, of Einstein GPT this week. As for the future, I mean, it's really about you know bringing enterprise-grade generative AI to our clients, whether those are small businesses or the largest companies in the world, and doing it in a way that's rooted in business outcomes. Uh, we're not talking about writing funny poems. We're talking about writing sales emails and customer service responses that agents can send to get back to customers faster and doing it in a way that is trusted and secure with our customers' data. Right. How long is your contract with ChatGPT? I ask because there's been a big question as to whether they become a sort of monopoly player in terms of the AI models that support so many other businesses, or whether we think that Google and others will emerge and offer competitive products that create a sort of sort of multiple AIs that are out there that, that, that then sort of power so many different services? Einstein GPT is a combination of our proprietary AI from Salesforce and an open ecosystem of vetted generative AI partners. We announced OpenAI as one of our initial launch partners this week, but we also announced a $250 million generative AI fund from Salesforce Ventures investing in other generative AI startups like Cohere and Anthropic. And so we're really taking an ecosystem approach and when it comes to AI, we've actually been on this journey for over seven years. We introduced Einstein AI in its original form to the market in 2016, and we've just seen exponential adoption and growth, now delivering over 200 billion AI predictions every day. Right. How much of the, uh, you know, when a client uses a service like this and asks, a, asks it to write a letter or a question, and, and by the way, provides details to the service in the course of the prompt, if you will. How much of that data then goes back to ChatGPT? That is exactly the reason why companies don't want their employees using consumer chatbots for work. It's making sure that their proprietary data doesn't get out there into the open for public use. And I think that's why so many customers have come to us and why there's been so much excitement around Einstein GPT, because they know they've been trusting Salesforce for 24 years to keep their data protected and secure. But I think that part of the question becomes not just how much on the consumer grade version does it go back to ChatGPT, in terms of your own ability to train um, the service, how much of that data gets therefore shared, if you will, between clients. Not that the clients are sharing the information with each other, but sharing it with you effectively. We keep our customers' data separate. We always have for the last 24 years. It's part of our multi-tenant model. And so we're bringing that to bear in the AI space, just like we have for the last seven years. So it's a critical part of making sure that this is a trusted environment for using generative AI. And, and when you think about what this looks like long-term, we keep having big conversations about labor. I mean, how much, how much labor do you think is going to be needed? Do you think this actually increases productivity remarkably and therefore, and, and, but not just productivity, but you need as many people as you needed before? Do you say to yourself, you know what, we had, you know, I don't know, a couple thousand people writing lots of uh, emails and letters to people, and now we don't need all those people? I think short and medium term, you look at how salespeople work today, and most of them, they dread writing sales emails. They'd much rather be out there with customers. And so being able to offload those tasks that are you know, more mundane and more onerous, same with customer service agents. They don't like 
having to read through hundreds of pages of product documentation and terms and conditions. They want to focus on engaging with the customer and problem solving. And so I think that that's what we're seeing on the horizon. In terms of the far horizon and long term, Salesforce is a big believer in continuous upskilling and reskilling. We have a community of what we call trailblazers. That's a conference we had this week. And so many of the people, everyone comes because they want to continuously learn as technology evolves. One of the broader questions, and this goes to the issue of sort of data and how the data gets used and siloed. Long term, how do you see this playing out? Because so much of what ChatGPT has done so successfully is to boil the ocean, if you will, of the Internet. And to make this work, the question is whether content creators, I mean, right now what you're talking about is contextually people will have their own data that they'll train off of, but whether they're going to need other data to train off of and whether people will pay a licensing fee effectively to do that. Well, I think that's the difference between the consumer space as well as versus the enterprise space. In the enterprise, the use cases are well-defined in terms of sales, marketing, commerce, um, service, IT. And so in some cases, we don't even need a large language model. You can, you can use a medium language model and get very high precision, high accuracy, not have to spend as much on compute, reduce your carbon footprint. And being able to combine that with what's happening in the broader space and do it in a secure way, I think that's the future for the enterprise when it comes to AI. And how worried are you right now about the accuracy of ChatGPT? Because there are still mistakes there. And, and the other piece of it is, the service, at least as it's designed today, maybe it's going to be designed differently uh, through your service, doesn't necessarily provide footnotes or a way necessarily to double check the information. Well, we've all seen what's happened in the news, again, in the consumer space where the queries are more open-ended versus in the business world, it's, it's very constrained, right? Specific not only to a salesperson or a customer service agent, but even specific to their industry. And with those constraints, we're able to increase the accuracy um, of, the, of the data and the output. And then the other thing is AI is only as valuable as the quality and the trustworthiness of the data. And Salesforce being the, the customer record and the single source of truth, especially our data cloud, where our customers are putting all of that data. Otherwise, it's, it's the old garbage in, garbage out problem. What's the cost of a query? We have not determined the final pricing yet for Einstein GPT. Do you know what the underlying cost of a query is going to be? That is continuously sh- uh, shifting. We just heard an announcement from OpenAI last week that they were bringing the cost down despite launching the next generation of their technology. And so um, the different providers in our ecosystem have slightly different pricing from one another. And over time, we should see that fall. as as the cost of compute goes down. Okay. Claire, it's great to see you. We appreciate it. Thanks for waking up early on the West Coast. Thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, new consumer data from Bank of America. Spending is increasing, but some sectors are seeing more of our dollars than others. Head of the Bank of America Institute, Liz Everett Crisberg. It is absolutely a services story. People are eating in restaurants where they're not spending money is on goods, and particularly, we noticed, on the home. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. This is Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. 
Here's Becky. Bank of America out with its latest consumer spending data. Credit and debit card spending per household actually decelerated in February to 2.7% year over year. That was down from 5.1% in January. Joining us right now is Liz Everett Chrisberg, who is the head of Bank of America Institute. Um, Liz, let's talk about this. Slowing to 2.7%, does that suggest that things are dropping off a cliff, or is this still a pretty healthy number? I don't think so. I mean, consumers are still spending. If you look actually at our total payments data, um, that was up 9% in February. But as you said, credit and debit card spending up 2.7, not you know, down from the pop of 5.1 in January, but they are still spending. I think we've essentially just got normalized to the decelerating growth that we saw through most of 2022. Everyone is waiting for when the consumer actually runs out of excess savings, when they get to the point that we really return to a normalized spending pattern. Yep. Are we there yet? When is it happening? I don't think so. I mean, I keep looking at this, um, looking at the consumer deposit balances and across all of the income levels, we continue to see, you know, decel- they're dipping into savings, but there's a lot of, of buffer. Um, so consumers across all com- income levels have money. They have got 50% more, essentially, than they did pre-pandemic. And while, again, they're dipping in, it's really stabilizing. And in fact, the lowest income cohort, so those households that are under 50000 actually saw a slight uptick this month. Now, In spending? It, not in spending, in deposit balances. Oh, in deposit in balances. Deposit balances. What was that from? Probably tax refunds. Okay. Um, but if we're looking at when's the consumer going to run out of money, our data is showing them, again, with close to 50% more than they had pre-pandemic. So if, if spending's up 2.7%, though, that's well below the rate of inflation. Well, if you look at, if you look at um, the credit card data annualized over the last three months, it was actually at 4.8%. So that is outpacing inflation. Um, the 2.7 number is lower, but again, if that's got a little bit of wiggle room from the holiday in January. So again, I look at the three-month annualized at 4.8. Can you break it down to, to know what they're spending on? Is this on consumer discretionary? Is this on things We can. That we can. Yeah. And it is, if we look at the mix, it is absolutely a services story. So airlines were up 27%. Um, people are getting on planes. People are eating in restaurants. Restaurants are up 7 um, where they're not spending money is on goods, and particularly we noticed on the home. So home improvement, down seven. Furniture, down 14. Wow. So definitely a services story, not a good story. And that's because probably everybody bought everything they wanted the last three years. Probably part of it and didn't get to travel as much as they wanted to. So we're seeing that that uptick again. I, I, I want to emphasize why we take the time to break this down. Bank of America banks half of every, you know, one out of every two households yeah. in America. You've got some deep, extensive data that you have access to. Yeah, and it's, and it's not just the spending data. It's also looking at um, the deposit numbers that I mentioned before, but it, we also get to see inflows. And one of the things that I'm sure a lot of people have their eyes on is the labor market. And so one of the things that we looked at was what's going on with all of those missing workers, the two million workers who were getting direct deposit before the pandemic and no longer are. Who are those people? Are they going to come back? Um, and interestingly, a lot of those folks were prime age work. Some of them were retirees. We saw more people retire, likely due to poor health, than the population trends would have expected. But of the prime age workers, many of them were lower income, in-person, retail, and restaurant workers. The other thing we saw, which was kind of interesting, was there, again, prime age workers' internal migration, domestic migration, 
from higher cost of living states, California, New York, Massachusetts, to states that have got higher affordability. Dara Kasrashahi from Uber suggested that a lot of these people are self-employed at this point. Is that, is that what you see in the data too? We see gig income supplementing, but what we haven't seen in our data is regular income from gig work. So gig income seems to be supplementing, and I think for those people who had moved to the higher, more affordable states, what they can either afford to work less hours, they can afford to live off their the savings that they have, the excess savings, and maybe supplement it with gig work. But we haven't seen in our data yet people completely switching to regular gig work. Liz, thank you. There's other stuff I want to get to. We'll talk about it next time. But in tech workers, that hasn't really shown up either with the layoffs in terms of spending being down in those. No, they, you know, and we were wondering if that was going to be the case not and yet. really not yet. Liz, thank you. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us back. We need to get Monday back. That is the return to office message from John Neal. He's the CEO of Lloyd's of London. In an interview with the FT yesterday, Neal said Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays are busy, but it's been a challenge to get workers back in the office at the start of the week. He said in-person work is important for talent development, so the next generation can be better than his generation. You know, if you look at even flight schedules these days in terms of where the volume is, Thursday night, Monday night. Very popular. through the, the days, Monday, Tuesday, it also, I was, you know, I almost said, and Friday, I'm in love. But we don't. I do, almost said that too. You did. We don't do that anymore. We don't. Do, you know, and they play it on any day. That's what irritates me on my radio. It comes on on like a Tuesday. It's like. That's the pod for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right to your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.